After David Glenn Lewis disappeared in 1993, a confusing timeline left the investigators and the family with different theories about what happened. It took 10 years to get even a partial answer to the mystery, yet that answer introduced even more questions. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to day four of 12 Days of Crime Lines. I've chosen a bunch of cases from my suggestion list that are too short for a full Crime Lines episode, but all of these cases are ones I think need more attention. This case was recommended by Jack, so thank you for sending it over. This is one of the oddest cases I've covered, and that's saying something. But since there aren't a ton of details, there is a lot of room for speculation. But I will try my best not to make this one of those episodes where I just sound confused the entire time. So let's get started with David Glenn Lewis. He was born in December 1953 in northern Texas, where he pretty much stayed for his entire life. He was the quarterback on the football team for his small town high school. He then went to Texas Tech, where he graduated in 1975 with a political science degree. And then he moved on to the Texas Tech University School of Law, graduating from there in 1979. Two years after this, David married Karen Garrett, and they settled in the Amarillo area. For his entire life, including college, David didn't really go more than two hours from his hometown. Over his legal career, David worked as a prosecutor, a private attorney, an elected judge, and as an instructor at Amarillo College. After serving as a judge for a few years, he did lose the re-election, and in 1993, he was both in private practice while also teaching evening classes at the college. David was also very active in his church. He sang in the choir, he taught adult Sunday school, And then he was active in the community. He was a member of the Chamber of Commerce, the United Way, the Lions Club, and on and on. It looks like he was someone who was just always on the go. David and Karen had one daughter together, and Karen was a schoolteacher. I don't know if I can state it strongly enough how all-American, that stereotypical all-American life, David and Karen Lewis lived. They would be the last people you would expect at the center of a huge mystery, but that's exactly what happened in 1993. Let's go ahead and jump into the timeline of what happened, and this timeline was laid out in an article in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. As always, it will be linked in my sources. Around noon on Thursday, January 28th, 1993, David left work at the law practice early. He told his co-workers at the firm that he just wasn't feeling well. David then bought gas, presumably went home, and then later taught a class at Amarillo College until around 10 p.m. David's wife, Karen, and their 10-year-old daughter flew to Dallas for a long weekend shopping trip that same day, so we do not have their witness statements as to David's movements over this weekend. Instead, we get a hodgepodge of sightings. On Friday, January 29th, a police officer noticed there was a red Ford Explorer outside the Potter County Courts Building in Amarillo. This matched David's vehicle, and it would have been around 10.30 in the morning. 
That same day, a friend of David's from church said he saw David hurrying through the Amarillo airport in the Southwest Terminal. He was not carrying any luggage. The courthouse to the airport is just about a 15-minute drive. Being that this sighting is from someone who actually knew David and not someone who later recognized his picture, it does carry a lot of weight to me. The following day, on Saturday, January 30th, someone deposited money into the Lewis's joint bank account, and it was a lot of money, $5,000, which is more like nine dollars to $10,000 in today's money. At this point, the red Ford Explorer that the officer had seen downtown wasn't there anymore, but a neighbor of the Lewis's said that he saw the vehicle parked at the house that day. It's also been reported that the last confirmed sighting of David was on this day, but I couldn't find out more information on who saw him. I know Robin from the Trail Went Cold spoke to someone who lived in the area at the time, and that person said their understanding is that David went to see someone about buying a basketball hoop for his daughter's upcoming birthday. He told the man that he would have to talk to his wife about it and would let him know if they were going to buy it. This isn't in any of the reporting I've seen, but this wouldn't be the first time information isn't published in the papers, but it is known by people in the town because they know the family or they know someone who knows the family. So I'm not going to discount this at all just because I can't verify it, but I do need to say I can't verify it. It is very possible this was the last person to see David. On Sunday, January 31st, which was Super Bowl Sunday, a deputy by the courthouse saw a man who he said looked like David Lewis standing across the street from the court building. A red Ford Explorer was parked out front, and it looked like the man was photographing it. Also that day, Karen and their daughter returned home from their weekend away, and David wasn't home when they got there. Karen found two turkey sandwiches in the fridge and laundry in the dryer. The reporting specifies that the sandwiches were fresh. David's watch and wedding ring were left on the kitchen counter. The family's VCR was recording the Super Bowl football game, and I do wonder if they could tell if the VCR was programmed to start recording at the beginning of the game or if someone had to be there to hit record. Now, the reporting on whether this was programmed or someone hit the record button has been spotty and inconsistent. And while I am clearly old enough to not only remember VCRs, but I've owned more than one, I have no idea how much data they held like that. Would they even be able to tell? I'm guessing they didn't hold nearly as much data as, let's say, the Alexa that can probably tell you the last time I coughed. Anyway, Karen didn't know where David had gone, but assumed he went to watch the game with his friends, or maybe he headed into the office to get a jump on work for the upcoming week. There were no signs in the house that anything nefarious had happened, and all of his belongings were there, except the things he would have taken with him to go out, like his car and his wallet. David did not return home that night, and then he did not go to work in the morning. After he missed two scheduled work appointments, Karen called the Amarillo police to report him missing. David just was not the type to be gone all night without an explanation. 
the police were able to piece together the timeline we just went over and also a few other points. They found that on January 31st, the day Karen arrived home with their daughter, an airline ticket was purchased in David's name. It was one way from Dallas to Amarillo. The following day, February 1st, another plane ticket was purchased. This time was a one-way ticket from Los Angeles to Dallas. Now, we are going to get into these tickets in detail later. A Dallas taxi driver did come forward and say he picked up a man fitting David's description at a Dallas-area hotel and drove him to the airport on Monday, February 1st. This would have been right around the time Karen reported him missing. The driver said this man appeared nervous and fumbled with a bunch of $100 bills when it was time to pay the fare. There is no indication of how David got to Dallas. On February 2nd, 1993, the police found David's red Ford Explorer at the court building in Amarillo, so he didn't drive it down there. Had the Explorer been there since Sunday when the deputy said he saw someone taking pictures of it, or was it moved there later? Inside the vehicle were David's checkbook, driver's license, and two credit cards. Under the floor mat was his key ring that had his house and his car keys on it. Now, the investigation really continued to proceed like this, scattered bits of information and possible evidence, but nothing that led down a clear path. Early on, the lead investigator did ask Karen to take a polygraph, which she refused to take. Now, it doesn't appear like she was much of a suspect. She wasn't even in town at the time. So I'm really curious what they wanted to ask her. It took about four months for David's disappearance to really get picked up in the media. The police told the papers at that time that they had conflicting evidence that supported pretty much any theory. He ran off to get away from his stressful life. He took his own life and even evidence that he may have been abducted. Karen said she believed from day one that David had been murdered. She said she knew it was possible for anyone to up and leave, but it just didn't make sense with David. Nothing seemed amiss prior to the weekend, and he was looking forward to their daughter's upcoming birthday, even going back and forth over what to get her as a gift. Being that David was a judge at one time and a lawyer, you have to wonder if he made any enemies through his work. At the time, the newspapers did report two cases David worked on that involved serious money and or heightened emotions. And though I'm sure there are more than just these two, this is what we have to work with with the reporting. The first case was a lawsuit from a convicted murderer. In 1976, Bobby Templin's 20-year-old wife, Rhonda, died while bathing. According to Bobby, she was in the tub when the radio she was listening to fell in and electrocuted her. Now, Rhonda's parents did not believe the story. There were a few things that didn't add up to them. For one, Rhonda had a nice stereo system right there, yet for some reason she decided to listen to a cheap radio while she was in the bath. Another thing was the extension cord. The one she used had frayed wires, which is why she was electrocuted. Yet there was a brand new extension cord in the kitchen that she could have used instead. 
It didn't make sense. She would use a ratty old extension cord and a cheap old radio when she had other options. And her parents also said they didn't know her to take baths, but she would rather shower. Bobby claimed he wasn't home when the accident happened. He had left the house to go get gas. But when the police checked out his car, his tank was only half full. And then Bobby lied to the parents about having an insurance policy on Rhonda. He told the family he didn't have one, so they went ahead and paid for her funeral. But then, come to find out, he not only had a life insurance policy on Rhonda, it was specifically for accidental deaths. He collected $10,000, which is nearly $50,000 in today's money. Bobby would claim that the insurance policy was actually his father-in-law's idea for them to get. But his in-law said not only did they not know about it, he denied he had it when they asked him. So someone here is clearly lying. The police, though, insisted this was an accident in spite of the family's doubts. But Rhonda's parents pushed and basically investigated the case themselves until they had enough evidence to bring it to the authorities and persuade them it was a homicide. It was five years after Rhonda's death before Bobby was indicted by a grand jury in 1981. He was convicted, though the verdict was overturned on appeal, so he was tried and convicted again. He maintained his innocence throughout. Bobby was up for parole in 1989, and the parole board initially recommended his release. But his in-laws, Norbert and Jay Schlegel, had written to the board opposing it. And in that letter, they compared Bobby's charm to that of Ted Bundy's. Bobby was not released at this time in spite of the parole board initially recommending it. Bobby then turned around and sued his in-laws for invasion of privacy for intervening in his parole process. The lawsuit was eventually dismissed at Bobby's request, and Rhonda's parents said, They believed his plan the entire time was just to disrupt their lives enough to intimidate them out of writing any future letters to the parole board. As for what this has to do with David Lewis, he was Norbert and Jay's attorney on the case. The case was dismissed about seven months before David disappeared. I personally think this case only came up because it was a high-profile one. Because what would the motive be? Bobby decided to dismiss the case himself, and he certainly didn't have the means or connections to have a hit put out on a lawyer from behind bars. Norbert and Jay didn't appear to have any complaints about David's work, so the motive here is pretty much non-existent. The second case brought up in the reporting on David's disappearance is one I think might actually be more relevant to this case, and it's one where David Lewis was actually not a lawyer, but a defendant. David's previous law firm had represented a company that ended up suing them, and David was named in this lawsuit. The reporting on this is so vague that I couldn't even find the actual lawsuit. According to the reporting, the plaintiff was suing for $3 million. At the time of his disappearance, David was the only defendant who had not yet been deposed and he was supposed to sit for his deposition in the days after his disappearance. Karen also said David's files on the case were gone. 
it doesn't seem likely that David would have left because he was worried about the outcome of the lawsuit. From the details that have been put out there, he didn't have any personal liability on the line. Any judgment would have been paid out through the law firm's insurance. So then the question becomes, did David know something that might come out in his deposition that week, something that someone didn't want to come out? David's family thinks that's a possibility. But the lead investigator said he thought it was more likely that stress was what David struggled with, maybe not just from the lawsuit, but also he had recently lost the election for his seat on the bench, and his legal practice was slowing down. Add in the plane tickets purchased in his name, and the police began leaning towards David, leaving on his own. Now, these plane tickets don't make sense to me. I know we're not all geography whizzes, and I know some of you don't even live in the United States. But David's disappearance starts with him in Amarillo. So why would he buy a ticket from Dallas to Amarillo? How was he going to get to Dallas, which is a six-hour drive away, and why would he just fly back home? He then bought a ticket to leave Los Angeles, which is a 1,000 miles away, to then fly back to Dallas. How was he getting to L.A.? Now, it doesn't make sense to me that these tickets led the police to believe David left on his own because this flight path makes no sense. Unless this entire thing was misreported. What if we reverse them? A one-way ticket from Amarillo to Dallas and then from Dallas to L.A. That makes a lot more sense with, you know, how travel works. Now, another theory is that David did buy random tickets in his name to confuse things so people wouldn't know where he went. Then he traveled under a fake name or took a bus or a train out of town. It's not been reported if the plane tickets were ever used, but if the police are pointing at them as evidence he left on his own, then I think they know whether they were used or not. We also don't know if David was the one who bought these tickets. Even today, you don't have to show an ID to buy a ticket. You do, since 1996, have to show an ID to board a plane. But prior to that, you didn't. David's ID was found in his wallet in his vehicle. So if he got on a plane at any point, we know he did not show ID. But it's possible David never used these tickets and maybe he never even bought them. Like I said, you don't need an ID to book airline tickets in the U.S. Someone else could have bought them in his name. Another theory I've heard is that David Lewis is a common enough name, so how do we know this is our David Lewis? But I have to imagine the police know, and are pretty sure it was him, or they wouldn't put so much stock in these tickets. So perhaps he used a credit card to buy them or something else that verifies he was the one who purchased them. None of the information or theories led them to where David went, willingly or not. And within a year, the investigators had to admit this case was growing cold. There were just no more leads to pursue. Unless something came to them, the police leaned towards David Lewis leaving on his own, and it doesn't look like there was a lot more done to look for him. Fast forward 10 years to February 2003. A detective named Pat Ditter in Washington State read an interesting article called Without a Trace. This article was about missing persons cases. 
It specifically highlighted unsolved cases that had grown so cold that they weren't being treated as priorities at all anymore. And it also mentioned something in there about the National Crime Information Center database and how it turned out it wasn't as reliable as they thought. So let's say you found a John Doe in one state and you put all the information you had on him into the database. It didn't mean the database would spit back all the possible matches with missing persons cases. So you could have the missing person and the John Doe in at the same time, and the computer will not connect to them, even if all the points connect. So Pat Ditter thought about a John Doe case he had on the books. It had happened around 10.30 at night, so after dark, on February 1st, 1993. A driver saw a man lying in the road in the Yakima, Washington area. The driver passed the man and then turned around to see what was going on and to warn other drivers that there was someone in the road so he wouldn't get run over. But by the time the driver got there, the man was already dead. He was dressed in army surplus-style clothing and had no identification on him. His tox screen came back clear, and he had been killed by being hit by a car. The witnesses could only say they saw a Chevy Camaro leaving the area around that time, but it's not clear if it was connected. It's just what they saw. This case was ruled a hit and run, and the driver was never caught. And the man killed was never identified. Detective Ditter now knew, thanks to that article, that his John Doe may not have had a hit with a missing persons report due to issues with the system at the time. So he decided to skip the crime database, and he hopped on Google. This was 2003, so Google was around six years old at this point. Google it was not the common phrase. It is today. That just means look something up. And Detective Ditter was even called very computer savvy because he thought to use Google. Anyway, within a week, Detective Ditter had a list of potential matches, men of the right age and time frame. David Glenn Lewis was one of those men, and Ditter found him on the Doe Network's website. The location, however, seemed like a stretch. David was reported missing in Texas on the same day that John Doe was killed in Washington. Texas and Washington are nowhere near each other. But then Ditter noted that David hadn't been seen in over 24 hours before he was reported missing. It was actually possible he could have made it to Washington State in that time frame. Ditter then compared the morgue photos of the Doe with David's picture and thought it looked like a match, except David wore big, thick glasses. He just couldn't see anything without them. So Ditter checked the evidence list, and there were eyeglasses on the list of items found with the body. Ditter's next step was to pull out the 10-year-old evidence box and go through it, looking for those glasses. He found them, and they looked identical to the ones in David's missing persons picture. Ditter then reached out to the Amarillo Police Department to compare notes. Yakima still had a tissue sample from the John Doe that they had saved. So that and a sample from David's mother were sent to the University of North Texas, 
which houses the Center for Human Identification. It is dedicated to this type of work. They were able to confirm in October 2004 that the Yakima John Doe was David Glenn Lewis. So the same day David was reported missing, he was hit by a car 1,600 miles away. Obviously, this gave his family some answers as to what happened to him, but it opened up some huge questions. Like, how did he make it to Washington? I mean, if we reverse the plane tickets and say he flew to Dallas, then to L.A., he still had to get to Yakima, which is a 16-hour drive from L.A., And why? What was he doing in Yakima, walking along the side of a road in army clothes well after dark? Had he been abducted or threatened or coerced into leaving town? Or did he have a midlife crisis and just take off for some reason? Where did he get that clothing? His wife said he didn't own anything like that, the military-style clothes and the work boots. He left with nothing, and when he went to buy clothes, he bought army surplus? And then there's the most important question, and that's who killed him? Was this someone who knew who he was and why he was out there? Or was it really just a random hit and run? I think it's likely the evidence of how David Lewis got from Texas to Washington State in 1993 is either in the police files and hasn't been released, or it has been lost. Bank statements, receipts, and other evidence may just not exist in the system anymore. Had they known where to look, they may have found it sooner, but because he was a John Doe for 10 years, they didn't. But at least his family does have some answers. His wife and daughter know that he didn't just run off somewhere and abandon them. After the identification was confirmed, David Glenn Lewis's remains were returned to Texas, where his family could say goodbye the way he and they deserved. 